Welcome to In-Depth Studies Weekend. In-Depth Studies is the teaching ministry of Jeff Volker, which seeks to equip the believer with a theological foundation. All teaching is from the point of view of the doctrines of grace and New Covenant theology. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Paul Honeycutt, joined as always by Jeff Volker, Director of In-Depth Studies. You know, Jeff, we've been talking so much about Old Covenant, New Covenant, Nation of Israel, uh, unbelieving picture, and, and so forth, but... It strikes me that there are an awful lot of people, even unbelievers that I talk to on a fairly regular basis, that really don't understand who who was the nation of Israel. What do we do with them today? How are we to view them? And what is what what you know what what is the significance of them to us today? And where do we go in Scripture to sort this one exactly. out? That's the issue. And so, fortunately, that we have a chunk of Scripture that has been given over to this subject matter. It's Romans 9, 10, and 11. Okay. Uh, the whole, all three chapters are given over to answer the question, what about Israel? What are we, so, what's God doing with uh, Israel today? Well, and that, you know, the, the, yeah. excuse me for interrupting, but the thing that, that strikes me, too, as we, as we go into these three chapters, is these are written by Paul, who was a Jew, uh, yes. whose heart was broken, in a sense, over the, the plight, if you will, of the Jews. Absolutely, absolutely true. So it really is a relevant and very significant uh, chunk of Scripture. Okay, so let's begin. First, the first section will be the first five verses of chapter 9. Paul says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he's really, I mean, I mean this is a remarkable yeah. statement. Um, when he says, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, that is the Israelites, that I'd be willing to go to hell if they could be saved. I don't know if I could say mm. that about other people, but we'll just let Paul, you know, stand by his own words. And then he says, theirs, speaking to Israel, is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, he's just ta- he's just giving a grocery list of all the benefits Israel had that the Gentile did not have. Yeah, and if you stop right there just for a second, you know, all the things we've been saying, I mean, I can understand from one point of view. If I've been listening to this program, I've never heard... New Covenant theology and had these, you know, you know, thought some of the things we've been covering. I might say, yeah, wait a second. Look, look at all the things Paul just says about this nation. How can you tell me they were nothing but a unbelieving picture type shadow, what have you, and and are in a sense no longer relevant in a in a certain sense? How can you say that? Isn't right. this speaking against that? And the mistake that is made is that you're reading into these first five verses five verses of Romans 9, something that's not there. That is, they were, it says, particularly in verse, uh, pick it up here, verse 3, he says, theirs, or verse 4, theirs is the adoption as sons. Now, but not believers. They That is, they had a unique relationship that none of the other nations, the Gentile nations, had, but that, or that unique relationship or what we might call most favored nation status with God, mm. salvation wasn't part of that. And 
This is what caused people problems. We're, we're, we're going to discuss right. this. But before we even go further, drop back in the book of Romans to the last two verses of chapter 2. Here, the Apostle Paul is changing his definition of something. Mm. That is, he's going to say, he's going to change the definition of what is a Jew. And by Jew, he means people of God. So he says this, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Meaning that a Jew is a real believer. Well, as soon as he says that now, he's changed the definition of a Jew because to be a people of God, you have to be a real believer. This will eliminate virtually all of Israel, except for a small remnant. And that's the backdrop of which we find Romans 9. So then you, so you got all these benefits that Israel has experienced that the Gentiles did not. It's absolutely true. So then you go to verse 6. Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What do you mean God's word had failed? Well, if you think that Israel is the real people of God, well, Israel as a whole, they don't buy Jesus. Well, that means Jesus' death on the cross has failed to purchase the people. And, of course, Paul's point is, no, 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 no. Jesus, God's word has never failed. But then he's going to explain that you have a misunderstanding. He goes in verse 7, nor, for, well, I guess I should re- explain the end of verse 6, where he says, not all Israel is Israel. You are mistaken if you equate literal Israel with the real Israel of God, meaning if, the, you, if you equate Israel, which is the picture of the people of God, with the spiritual Israel, the real people of God, you are making a mistake. You cannot equate the two. Okay? And then he'll say that again in verse 7 nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Just because they are Abraham's literal descendants, it doesn't mean that they are his spiritual children. Once again, he says, you're making a mistake of equating the two, literal Israel with the real people of God. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And what does he mean? He says, in other words... It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. What's he saying? He says you cannot become a believer by just being born into the right family of the right nation. That's not how it works. Because then it says, well, because how did Abraham even have an offspring? God supernaturally provided it. That when Sarah and he were as good as dead as far as age, having the proper age to have children, they were way too old. God supernaturally intervened, and they had a child, and it was Isaac. Okay? And so he's, in effect, saying that in order to become one of the real people of God, God has to cause that to happen. Right, you can't you can't accomplish it physically. No, 
this isn't going to happen. And so at that point, now he's going to explain this a, a little f- further, beginning at verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Yet before the twins, because Rebekah had twins, that, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. No, now you stop there. He says, okay, now the way you become the real people of God is that God chooses you. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. God has to choose you. So he says, I chose Jacob. I did not choose Esau. Now we know historically that e- even the, the descendants of Jacob are Israelites because he has his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Also, the descendants of Esau are the Edomites, country of Edom. And once again, God gave blessings, most favored nation status, to the physical descendants of Jacob, Israel. God put down the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the physical descendants of Esau. So even that is a picture of, But he now, since he's talking about in this context salvation, he says the way you become a believer is that God has to choose you. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That is, I chose to save Jacob. I did not choose to save Esau. And that took place before they had done anything good or bad. Good or bad. I mean, the good, that makes sense, but the bad also. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this gives us, this at least gives the impression that God is just sort of arbitrary, sitting mm-hmm. on a, uh, you know, a, a uh, just a recliner in heaven, just sort of <laughs> saying, well, I'm going to save him, I'm not going to save him. Yeah, and, of course, maybe if he was made in our image, that would make sense, but, of course, he's holy, and that's not true, because verse 14 then, then says the very thing that we think of, what then shall we say, is God unjust? And, of course, he says, not at all, because that can't be possible for a holy God to be unjust. But then he goes on to say in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Now, just step back for a moment. In beginning in verse 15, he's going to explain how God can choose those who go to heaven over those who go to hell. God chooses. And, of course, this causes problems. It looks like he's being unjust. And so he then begins with verse 15 to sort of explain that away. But what he says doesn't seem to make things easier but more difficult. Mm -hmm. Because he says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion, meaning I do what I want to do. Yeah, I'm God, you're not. I know, it's exactly. (laughs) And then verse 16 says, it does not therefore depend on God's mercy or on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Same thing. He's just he's sort of putting salt on the wound. Mm. And then, if that's not enough, verses 17 to 18 says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So that means I raised Pharaoh up, so that I could harden his heart and condemn him. That's exactly. So this is, I mean, on one hand, 
This is a very simple concept. On the other hand, it's terribly difficult to accept for some folks. It sounds very arbitrary, as you said. It sounds like yeah. this, this earth is one, you know, one big chessboard. Yes. And, of course, here he's driving home the point that the way you become a believer is that God has to choose you. Now, we can stop and we can take some side roads, but that's not our purpose mm-hmm. at this study as to the hardening. Mm-hmm. We'll just kind of digress just a little bit. If you go back to Exodus, where you have the giving of the ten plagues, and on some of the plagues, at the end, they will say, of course, Pharaoh, after he saw the plague, experienced it, he sort of said, okay, the Israelites can go, and then he changed his mind. And then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But sometimes it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it, from a certain point of view, it looks like Scripture is talking out of both sides of its mouth, but actually it's looking at it from two different points of view. Scripture always addresses the problem of evil this way, that God determines everything before it happens, that is, everything is part of his plan, even evil. Yet when evil is accomplished, those who do the evil and they alone are to be blamed. God is never allowed to be blamed. And yet the evil is a part of his plan, predestined plan. This causes, but this seems to be the universal way it gets handled all throughout Scripture. So, there in Exodus, where they, talk, where they discuss the plagues and Pharaoh's response, when they say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, they're referring to the fact that the hardening of Pharaoh was a part of God's plan, predestined plan, absolutely true. But when they say Pharaoh hardened his own heart, they are talking about who is to be blamed, and that's Pharaoh. God can never be blamed, only the person who did the evil thing, which was Pharaoh. So that's really how Scripture deals with it, but uh, maybe uh, if our radio program stays on the air for a longer period of time, and this gives us maybe a chance to just share this, if you would like to support this program, uh, this is the only way it's going to stay on. It costs us approximately $250 a week uh, per program uh, to produce this and put it on the air. So if you would like to support this, that you can uh, do that through a, a love gift to in-depth studies, you can go to our website at www.ids.org, and you can give that way, or you can mail it in or send us gold bullion. <laughs> but um, that's how it's going to—the program will stay on the air. Okay, that brings us then to verse 19 of Romans 9. One of you will say to me—this is a rhetorical question— then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Meaning, of course, God has a right to do whatever he wants because he's God. And But verse 19 addresses, that rhetorical question addresses the questions we all ask. That is, if God's determining who goes to heaven and who goes to hell before it happens, he's not looking into the future. But he's determining it. He's not looking down the uh, quarter of time. No, no, he's not doing that. Then how, if he hasn't chosen to save me, it means I'm destined to hell, how can he blame me for being in hell? Mm -hmm. I mean, from a certain point of view, that sounds reasonable. And, of course, his answer is, but who who are you, you, O man, to talk back to God? And, of course, the issue is that men are always responsible for what they do. Always, always, always. 
The fact that the Bible reveals God determines everything before it happens, his predestined plan, is true, but that's sort of like inadmissible evidence in the court of heaven. If you die and you're not a believer and you're going to be sent to hell forever in active torment, you're not allowed to use predestination as an excuse. You made evil choices. You're responsible for those choices. I mean, we readily admit our, the God of Scripture is different than we are in his being. He can determine something, and yet those whom he has determined are still responsible for what they do. I can't do that to someone who I control. Mm-hmm. But God does. the way, That's how God works. And so he is God, and whatever he does is right, sort of end of discussion. Right. So then he moves on. And this is just sort of getting caught up here. He's, he's really, from here to the end of verse 29, he's really saying, well, let's look at this. Verse 22 says, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for us, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. What's he saying? Well, he's answering the question, well, what about the non-elect, those whom he doesn't save? Why did he even create them mm-hmm. if, they, if, they're going to go, if there's no way they can believe and they're going to go to hell? Because that's what he's saying. And the answer is the non-elect, we call them the reprobate, those who will never believe, God created them because they have a part to play in his plan to save the elect, and when their role is over, hell begins. I know this sounds tough and like a playing hardball, but that's the argument, that the non-elect have a part to play in the saving of the elect. And the illustration, of course, is let's use my salvation. As far as I know, I was the first believer in my family line, as far as I know. And then came my younger brother, Greg. We come from a long line of staunch Catholics, on my mother's side, they're Irish. On my dad's side, they are German, a little bit of French. As far as we know, we were all they were just Roman Catholics, not believers, all the way back. Well, for me to become a believer, I became a believer in 1970, right in before my third year at Penn State. For me to become a believer, I had to be in existence. For me to be in existence, I had to be a descendant. Other people had to come before me. And here we have a long line of unbelievers that, at least from a certain point of view, don't seem to have (coughs) any other purpose but to bring a believer into the world. They were absolutely, their existence was absolutely necessary because without that, without them as, as being part of my genealogy, I wouldn't have come into this world and then I wouldn't have become a believer. So this is, seems to be exactly what the Apostle Paul is making right. as his argument. Yeah, I'm reminded of some of the genealogies in the Gospels. Mm. You know, and you look at those, and they're, they're not all believers. So he really, in what he's doing at this point, he's just making the case that God is going to save both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, he's a, the real people of God are, are going to come from both Jews and Gentiles. And let's just sort of jump down to verse 30, because... This is really now it begins to get into the issue that why we're studying Romans 9 to 11. He says this, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. 
a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Of course, that's Jesus. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So what's he saying in verse, verses 30 through 32 at the end of Romans 9? He says he's making a general statement. He says that the Gentiles, now remember, he's making that statement as taking place during the new covenant era from Pentecost to second coming, that the Gentiles, who didn't have a ghost of a chance before, because there's, when you read the Old Testament, it's as though God only dealt with the Gentiles when they had something to do with his dealings with Israel. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they were just sort of dismissed. So the Gentiles, who now, with the coming of Pentecost, the new covenant era, the gospel going out to all over the known world, Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. They, they've never historically pursued it, but now they have obtained it because they've believed in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, that is, Israel is they always occupied the role as the picture of unbelieving picture of the of the people of God but they were under the old covenant which is a works covenant that most of them were sought to be accepted by God on the basis of works a law of righteousness and therefore they did not get accepted why not it says in verse 32 because They pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. And they stumble over the stumbling stone. Of course, that's Jesus. They reject Jesus, who by his death paid for the sins of all who are going to believe, grace. And they opted to try to be accepted by God on the basis of the old covenant, Mosaic law, which is works. Hence, they're unbelieving. But notice that this is sort of an overarching statement about Israel as a whole now. That is, they are unbelieving. That's the idea. And that's what um, folks a lot of times just don't quite grasp. And then we want to then take that idea and ask the next question. Okay, if they're unbelieving today, which they are today, well then, does God have a special plan for them in the future? And that's why we're going through Romans 9 to 11 to sort of sort that out because that is where this is all found. Okay. So that brings us up to chapter 10, verse 1. So let's go to the first four verses of chapter 10, as long as our time allows, because this sort of is an extension as to what we've been previously discussing, where he says this. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I mean, Paul was passionate about wanting Jews to believe. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is, they did not understand that the only way to be accepted, which is to become righteous, by God is that God has to do it for them. They, it is impossible to earn righteousness because they are unrighteous. 
because unless you are perfect, you, you cannot be accepted. That's the idea. And so he says that they are not believers because they were using the wrong method because the old covenant is a works covenant. It was never meant, as we saw in Galatians 3 and 4, it was never meant to be a means of salvation. They thought it was. They thought that if they just tried to keep this stuff, these laws, these sacrifices, these festivals, that that would be sufficient. And it's not, because Paul's argument, I mean, actually God's argument at the end of Deuteronomy is that he you have to keep the law perfectly to earn something from it, perfectly. And, of course, they did not. Therefore, they are condemned. And then verse 4 says of Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The end, is the Greek, the end of the law is the Greek word telos. That is, the purpose of the giving of the law to Israel was to was to drive us to the necessity of the cross, and the cross is the ultimate ending point of the old covenant period of time with Israel. That it is, it should end up at the cross because there acceptance with God is accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. It's given as a free gift. We don't have to earn it, and that is what Israel never understood. Good stuff. Uh, next week, we will talk about... We will continue to work our way through, through Romans 10 and 11 okay. and try to get a handle on the, the, the place of Israel and the plan of God in the New Covenant era. See you next week. If you have any questions about today's program, want more information, or would like to support our ministry, you can find us on the web at ids.org or call us at 480-924-4290 or email jeff at jeff.volker at ids.org.